I hope you tuned in tonight ready to exercise that organ between your ears because we've got some provocative content this evening. We are going to put one of the platform planks of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to the test. We're going to do what she clearly hasn't and break out a calculator and do some math to find out whether or not this idea of hers of universal basic income would actually work. We're going to do that later in the program. Also, I have a, a model that I want to share with you. I'm not quite sure how to classify this yet. It's a, a work in progress that I believe provides a, a framework in which we can better understand and process and perceive the news of the day, understand what's happening, understand the interaction between politics and culture, and react appropriately to the efforts from those on the political left to undermine our liberties going forward. But before we get to any of that tonight, have you ever looked back on the past and thought to yourself, boy, those were the days, you know, particularly on the right in libertarian circles, tea party circles, conservative circles, there is this tendency to look back at years long gone by with uh, a little twinkle in our eye, and think to ourselves, man, those were the days. Things were so much better back when we had more freedom, when the government was smaller, when the the tax rolls were reduced, when there were fewer agencies. And there's a kernel of truth to that, absolutely. But there's a bigger picture that we need to take into consideration. And we have a guest on the line with us during this first segment to flesh that out a little bit tonight. It's closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Catch us streaming at and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us this evening. You may feel so inclined as we proceed through the program tonight. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. So we begin with our guest on the line, Steve Horwitz, who is, now this is, this is a mouthful of a bio, the John H. Schnatter Distinguished Professor of Free Enterprise in the Department of Economics in the Miller College of Business at Ball State University in Muncie, Illinois, that is, or Indiana. That is one sentence. He is also an affiliated senior scholar at the Mercatus Center in Arlington, Virginia, and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute of Canada. He is the author of three books, including most recently Hayek's Modern Family, subtitled Classical Liberalism and the Evolution of Social Institutions. He's written extensively on Hayek and Austrian economics, monetary theory and history, and American economic history, and is a frequent guest on radio and cable TV programs such as this one. Welcome, Professor Horowitz. Appreciate you joining us on Closing Argument. My pleasure, Walter. Hope there's some time left for me to talk after that. <laughs> hey, you wrote it, right? Or somebody yeah, did, wrote yeah, it for you. <laughs> so there, we have you on tonight. You know, perhaps economics will come into play a little bit here, but primarily the reason why I wanted to have you on the program is because of a piece you wrote recently over at libertarianism.org, which people can go check out, entitled The Errors of Nostalgitarianism. 
And that's a provocative term, which I assume you've coined for us. Can you define and describe what nostalgiatarianism is and why we need to be cognizant of it? Yeah, I actually stole the term from a Facebook friend who who kind of came up with it, and I and it's now mine. So that's how that's going to go. Well, I think the idea behind that that term was simply there's too often libertarians uh, have this again nostalgia for the past and believe there was this time in the past of great freedom that you know sort of zenith of of a free society that we you know and we it's all been downhill since then. And they often point say to the late 1800s as as that time, mm-hmm. uh, and it's true and, and they have a point as you noted earlier right that that at least the the, the size of the state in terms of its government, in terms of its influence on our economic activity was much smaller. But the flaw in that argument is, is that they, that the nostalgitarians ignore the fact that women, people of color, oftentimes non-Christians, uh, and other uh, sexual minorities had very, very restricted rights at that time. So married women, uh, not uh, depending on the state, but married women couldn't, con- couldn't uh, c- conclude contracts. Uh, couldn't you know uh, own property of their own, and certainly Jim Crow laws were were common all over the place, and uh, you wouldn't want to be a person of color in the South at that time. So, uh, we can go on with, with examples like that. So, what we have is a world in which you know white property men perhaps had more freedom, but everyone else had very very little. And so, if we want to think about the, the total amount of freedom back then, we got to account for the fact that those other groups. Very restrictive in what they do. Yeah, it, it, the image comes to mind of kind of like a total freedom index, where you weigh on the one end the ways in which the state itself was indeed much smaller than it is today. However, you had all of these uh, various institutions of the state that were arrayed against the rights of uh, a number of minorities in different categories. Now. Why is this important as people who value individual rights, you know, whether we identify as libertarian or conservative or wherever we fall on the spectrum on the right side of the political aisle, so to speak? Why is it important for us to acknowledge this reality of the past and incorporate it into our activism going forward? I think a couple reasons, and the and the the first one is the most is the sort of we we just need to be on the side of truth, right? right? I mean, we don't we don't convince anyone if we don't get our facts right. But I think the other one, the other point is a little bit more strategic, right? That that when to the degree that say libertarians want to expand their their membership and and it's, and and make their ideas more appealing to more people. The reality is it's going to have to appeal to women, to people right. of color, to the LGBT crowd. I mean, all of those groups who were excluded 150 years ago are precisely the people who need to, you know, who, who we need to get the message to now. And when we make these nostalgitarian type arguments, those people hear that and think, wait, <laughs> you know, back then I couldn't do this, I couldn't right. do that, I couldn't right. vote, I couldn't get into a public university. But that's your idea of a free society. Why do I want to be a libertarian or, or whatever if, if your vision of a free society is one that excluded people like me? And I think, you know, in terms of getting our ideas out there and getting them uh, heard by, by groups who haven't in the past, the, the nostalgitarian argument, I think, is um, the kind of turn on to find people in those groups. Yeah, I, I recall this very 
argument being utilized both in 2012 and 2016 against the Republican nominees, both Mitt Romney and Donald Trump. And they brought it on themselves. You know, with Donald Trump, his his campaign slogan of Make America Great Again, implicit in that is the notion that there was some point in the past where America was, if not an ideal much closer to the ideal than it is today, and we need to work to bring ourselves back to that moment. And Mitt Romney had similar language that he used during the 2012 campaign, and in both cases, his political opponents, the the candidates' political opponents on the left, were able to say, well, do you really want to go back to 1955 or to 1920? Do you know what you were treated like as a black person or as a, a sexual minority or whatever the case may be? It's a persuasive argument it is and i think we, we see we've seen the left use that turn back the clock language right going back to at least bork right and so so i think it's really important for libertarians and, and others to to be forward-looking and say look we can recognize that back then the people who did have that economic freedom did a lot of great things wouldn't it be great if, if we had in the past extended those to all those other groups and if today we can talk about the ways in which the this sort of the, the you know extensive stand, hand of the state interferes with the ability of not right. just white men but women and people of color and everyone else to move to move forward economically and so if we could just you know get the burden of the state off everybody in the united states uh we, we could certainly have a much more free and prosperous society so i think that notion of looking forward right mm. without you know without saying the history of america was this sort of you know history of all the terrible things that happened we can recognize the good things but say that right. those are the things we want to make available to everyone now. right yeah, the the left has annexed the language of progress and the, mm-hmm. the language of forward thinking and looking forward and moving forward. And it's it's, you know, through the names of their organizations and all the rhetoric that they use in the public discourse. And that is it's more than unfortunate. It's <laughs> rhetorically criminal. I'll put it that way, yeah. because the, the fact and, of the matter is, yeah, go ahead. There's an irony there too, right? right. One of the ironies is, is that they're petrified of, of uncontrolled economic change, right? Mm-hmm. That, to, to them, to, to many on the left, right, the the that sort of forward-looking progress and so on, they don't want that right. in the way that markets deliver that through through the sort of process of discovery. And I think libertarians and others have an opportunity to grab onto that language and say, no, this is really, you know, we're we're the we're the people in the party of Uber. Right. And those Airbnb right. and sort of all these, you know, all these things that are that are forward looking yeah. about how markets work. Yeah, we, the, our way of doing things is how your life gets better over time, right. rather yeah. than you know, and, and that's a much better way, just as a sales pitch, than mm-hmm. saying we're going to drag you back to yesteryear. You know, looking forward. Yeah. So the final question I have for you this evening, Professor uh, Steve Horwitz. Um, is what has the response been? I'm sure in writing a post on uh, libertarianism.org, you have a wide audience there, and I'm sure you've gotten some feedback in terms of uh, response, both positive and negative, to your piece, The Errors of Nostalgitarianism there. What have you been hearing from folks? Mostly positive. And again, it's about, I mean, you know, mostly, most of the feedback's via Facebook and my Facebook page. And so there's a, there's a built in bias there, right? Right. Sure. Uh, but yeah. so, sort of mostly positive, and I think, Correlated with age to a significant extent, younger people get it in a way. And I think you know, the negative responses have been 
you know, sort of forms of what I would call right-wing virtue signaling, sort of saying, well, what you're saying, you're buying all this progressive nonsense you're saying that, that we have to, you know, don sackcloth and ashes every time we talk about the history of, of the United States. No, I'm not saying that at all. You know, read carefully, and, and you can recognize the good things from the past. But again, we want, we want to bring them, bring them forward. So I think the response has been, been mostly positive. But again, I'm, you know, I'm looking at a slice of it that's, that's probably prone to, to wanting to see the positives there. S.G. Horwitz, which is spelled H-O-R-W-I-T-Z dot com. That's your website. Uh, is, is there anything you're up to that you want to bring our listeners' attention to on your way out this evening? Uh, well, I'm, I'm hoping, because this project was with Libertarianism.org, which is all uh, in Cato, I'm hoping that in the next few months they will be releasing a, a whole series of videos and a text I did on as an introduction to Austrian economics. So for your listeners who are interested in Austrian econ, that should be coming out through Cato and Libertarianism.org. Sometime we, soon, and I'm, I'm waiting for the word from them, but, but sometime soon we should see that there, so that might be something that listeners will be interested in. Excellent. We will look forward to it and uh, keep track of it and have you back on when it comes out. Thanks for joining uh, thank us you. this evening. Thanks, Walter. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. We're going to expound upon what we just talked about with Professor Steve Horwitz when we return to TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Ain't nothing going on but the bombs, the rap song, hitting all night long. Just like me on the black and white ivory. Getting so we just spent some time talking with Professor Steve Horwitz, whose biography and credentials are extensive. He wrote a piece over at Libertarianism.org entitled The Errors of Nostalgitarianism, a term that was coined by one of his associates. And what he's talking about there is the tendency amongst libertarian circles and folks on the right generally to look back on the past with a sense of rose-colored glasses, nostalgia, and romance, and to try to whitewash, essentially, the truth of American history in order to portray some grand past that we ought to aspire towards. And this is this is something which the presidential campaign of uh, President Trump, his slogan, Make America Great Again, specifically speaks to this sense that there's some great past that we need to return to. And the point which Professor Horowitz makes is that the past, while it was certainly better in many, many areas, which we all recognize that the smaller, less expansive federal government, uh, m much fewer federal departments and bureaucracy, uh, we had the representation of the states in the form of uh, a, a federal Senate that was selected by state legislatures. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. No income tax, right? I mean, you you could build a great on-paper case that things were much, much better in the past, and you would be correct from a certain point of view. But, but we also have to take into consideration the many ways in which people's individual rights were being violated on a routine institutional basis by their own government, local, state, and federal, particularly if they found themselves to be in a minority class such as black, female, what have you. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. So the question that I have coming out of 
this piece by Steve Horwitz over at libertarianism.org is why did the course of history pan out the way that it did? How is it that in light of the injustices and, and I hate to use that terminology because our, the connotation of the word injustice has been ruined by the left. It's like, we can't even talk about injustice with intellectual honesty anymore because the left has ruined the term, but there is such a thing as injustice, right? And and can we acknowledge that slavery was an injustice? Yes. Can we acknowledge that Jim Crow was an injustice? Yeah, I should think so. Can we acknowledge that barring married women from being able to enter into contracts was an injustice? Yes, we ought to be able to do that. So, in, in recognizing that these injustices existed in the, gla- the grand glorious past, why is it that instead of recognizing those injustices as a inappropriate exercise in state authority and then acting accordingly by reducing the state's authority in those areas, we instead move the culture in a direction where we're prescribing more programs, more government more control, more centralization, because that's what's happened, right? There, there hasn't been an effective movement for less government, quite the opposite. There's been an effective movement for more government in order to address these injustices throughout history. Well, why is that? Well, allow me to present my model of, I don't know if you would call this political science or sociology or whatever the case may be, I'm I'm working on a a model here for how to perceive the events of the day and to better understand the intersection and the interaction between politics and culture. And I think this model helps us to explain why the course of history has gone the way it has in in America. It has to do with politics and culture as the chicken and egg in a causal sense. You know, politics is the the chicken and culture is the egg. The egg of culture gives us our politics and in return the politics gives us our culture. And it has this this kind of feedback loop effect where once the course is set in a particular direction That's the way it's going to go until there's some sort of revolutionary change, until the cycle is broken. And it occurs to me that when it comes to culture, we're really dealing with two different fundamental premises. One is a culture of conquest, wherein the idea is that the the means by which you obtain your values, the means by which you secure that which you want, is through the conquest of others, through taking what other people have, through controlling what other people can do, from defining the environment in which other people can act. The, the, this culture of conquest, of course, dominates the political left, but it's also present to a large degree on the political right. It's something that is, that is part of our American culture right now, and I would argue defines the public discourse. Everybody in a position of prominence Right now, with very few exceptions, you know, people like Justin Amash, Rand Paul, and a couple of others, you know, Massey and what have you, are legitimately arguing for the alternative to this, a libertarian alternative to this. But for the most part, what you see playing out in the partisan debate in the public discourse is a 
tug of war over the club of the state to determine who's going to be the conqueror and who is going to be conquered. Who's going to get their way and who is going to have to submit to the authority of the strong man. And it's all based upon the premise of might makes right. That's a culture of conquest. And what this spawns is an authoritarian politics, whereby, again, the question that's considered in, that informs legislation and that informs public policy positions is what do we do with the authority of the state? What do we do with the power of the state, our claim to authority, in order to seize that which we want rather than enabling ourselves through a condition of liberty to pursue our own values on our own terms. Conversely, there's a potential culture of consent, which also exists. This exists in America as well, and these two cultures are in conflict. We've talked about this before uh, in, uh, in similar terms. And the culture of consent is one where there's this mutual respect for your fellow human beings, where there's a desire to be of service, primarily to yourself, to produce your own values. But in order to do that, you recognize that you also have to be of service to others. You have to be respectful. You have to be productive in order to obtain and keep your values. And this culture of consent produces a libertarian politics, where the the objective is to create and foster and protect the condition of liberty so that you can interact under consent in pursuit of your values. And again, you know, there's this, this kind of feedback loop that takes place between the culture and the politics, where if you have a dominant culture of conquest, you will spawn a dominant politics of authoritarianism. And, bec and because of the politics of authoritarianism, people will be pushed further and further into the culture of conquest, and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and if it's not effectively interrupted and detoured back towards a culture of consent and a politics of libertarianism will eventually result in some form of despotism or another. And that's where we find ourselves right now. We find ourselves on the verge of one form of despotic authoritarianism or the other. And one is represented by the, by the left, of course, who is rooted in the culture of conquest. You know, the, every, the, the way that they talk, the way that they engage, the policies that they prescribe are all rooted in the notion that in order to obtain and keep that which is of value to you, you have to club somebody else over the head and take their stuff. That's the premise of their entire political worldview. So you've got that, but you also have emergent on the right displacing the culture of consent and displacing a libertarian politics, a right-wing form of conquest culture and authoritarian politics, whereby we're suddenly, we're, it's, it's a, if you can't beat them, join them type of response, where our prescription is, what are we going to do when we seize the state in order to protect our own interests and punish our political enemies. This is problematic. It's a cycle which must be broken. Otherwise, we're going to end up finding ourselves heading down a very dark path. 651-989-5855. When we come back, we'll go through a number of recent news items and apply this model to our analysis. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.
so I've just laid out a model to help us try and perceive the interaction between politics and culture. What's taking place to help us understand, to borrow a phrase from Donald Trump, what the hell is going on? Because isn't that the question that comes to mind when you see most headlines and read most news articles these days? What the hell is going on? What is happening? So much of what we're confronted with in the news on a day-to-day basis in recent months and over the past two, three, four years is mind-boggling in terms of, in, specifically in terms of how unfathomable it would have been just a few years before, right? Like, last night we talked about the the story of Scarlett Johansson and how her being cast to play a transgender male in an upcoming Hollywood film caused all this uproar on social media. The LGBT community came out and made the argument that it's horrible that Scarlett Johansson got cast in a movie because that role of a transgender male properly ought to go to an actual transgender person. Now, this is a completely absurd argument that nobody would have even dared raise two years ago. And yet, not only has it been raised today, it successfully resulted in her pulling out of the project and submissively consenting, you know, conceding the point and saying, yeah, you're right, I never should have taken this part. It it should go to some, you know, to-be-announced transgender actor who nobody knows and nobody sees any market value in and nobody's going to go see. That's, That's where we find ourselves. Why? Why? The the idea that I'm positing here is that politics and culture have this causal relationship, kind of like the chicken and the egg. And there's this genetic defect that is being passed along in the, the generation, the generational uh, iterations of our politics and our culture that is pushing us in the direction of authoritarianism. When you have a culture of conquest, which, you know, emerge, another way that I phrased it is a culture of grievance, right? The grievance is what drives your desire for conquest. A culture of conquest, which says, in order for me to obtain and keep my values, in order for me to feed my family and pursue my happiness, I need to conquer somebody else. I need to conquer the rich. I need to conquer white people. I need to conquer men. I need to conquer cisgenders. I need to conquer Christians. I need to conquer Republicans, right? Like, in order for me to get what I want, I need to put my foot down on somebody else's throat and take it because that's the only possible way that I'm ever going to be able to succeed. There's a large segment of the population in this country that believes that. And this culture of conquest spawns out of necessity an authoritarian politics. And the problem, as I see it right now, is that traditionally, historically, There's been an opposition to that from the right, where the right has lived in this culture of consent that recognizes the value of free markets, the the marketplace of ideas, the notion that the only truly effective way, the, the only condition in which you actually can pursue your happiness is the condition of liberty, that that's absolutely essential to human nature and the human condition. You must be free in order to pursue your values. And this culture of consent spawns a libertarian politics where we're focused on limited government and separation of powers and checks and balances, 
all to affect the condition of liberty in which we can pursue peace and harmony and productivity. And historically, there's been a contest between the political right and the political left along these terms of the culture of consent fighting against the culture of conquest. The problem, as I see it in recent years, is that the right has begun to abandon its commitment to the culture of consent and a libertarian politics and has instead decided that if they can't beat the left, they're going to join them. If they can't beat the left when it comes to this this front of the culture of conquest and this means of the authoritarian politics, then it's time to join them and to utilize the cudgel of the state in order to seek the values that peop- that the constituency on the right wants. So whether you're talking about something like tariffs or you're talking about something like immigration or you're talking about you know economic policies or social policies, it's all predicated on this idea that we must conquer the left. You see this play out, you know, I saw it on social media today, of you know, the, the, the notion of we ought to uh, own the libs, right? Let's, let's own the liberals. Let's take it to them. It's like the Steve Bannon policy of debating. Because this is how it started. I remember like a year ago when Steve Bannon, maybe more than a year ago now, was talking, or we were talking about the enigma that is Steve Bannon, we talked about how he's using the same policies that the left uses to get their way or make their point. Right. And and he was very explicit about that, that that's what he's doing. He's fighting fire with fire, you know, and there's an ex- there's a, an extent to which he built that worldview on the foundation that was laid by Andrew By Breitbart, who he worked for. But Breitbart's view was different. Breitbart was the happy warrior, right? Like. He understood that you needed to be willing to confront the left on the stage of public ideas and to be able to do so shamelessly and and with a sense of of passion and commitment to the, the moral high ground that your side is standing on. But at no point, as far as I know, did Andrew Breitbart advocate that we ought to start to adopt the means of the left in order to achieve our ends. Yeah, I remember how people used to talk about Breitbart before Steve Breitbart died. <laughs> and it was a lot different. Yeah. So, you know, the, we, we find ourselves in this situation. And so the, the task as I see it, for those of us who care about liberty, for those of us who want to see, you know, we just talked with Professor Steve Horwitz about, you know, looking back at the past and, and romanticizing it, you know, for those of us who, who want to see a return to the constitutional republic, an alliance to restore the republic, right? For those of us who want to see that, the task before us is to engage in a metaphorical revolution, which is no small task. It's a Herculean task to break the current cycle that we see where the, the generational you know genetics is spawning a culture of conquest and a politics of authoritarianism. Because that's the direction we're headed. That's the direction that the, the current momentum is going, is further and further down this path of authoritarianism. We need to break that cycle and to start to advocate for a culture of consent and a libertarian politics. And there's a, the, the reason why I wanted to have Steve Horowitz on the program tonight is because he speaks to a key strategic plank of how to go about doing that. And that is acknowledging 
the extent to which the past ain't bright and shiny, right, for everybody. Now, there were certain people, and, and you know, when, if you read his piece at libertarianism.org, The Error of Nostalgitarianism, he talks about the concept of privilege, and he specifically talks about how, how the, the kernel of truth within the white privilege concept is that under the, the, the past status quo, under the way things were at the turn of the, the century, under the 1800s and in the early 20th century, there were classes of people who were privileged by virtue of the fact that the government allowed them to do what they wanted. And that was the, that was the means by which they were privileged. And those who were underprivileged, as the left likes to put it, were put in that position through policies of the state, whether you're going back and talking about something like institutional slavery, chattel slavery, or you're talking about something like Jim Crow, or you're talking about you know things like the uh, bans on uh, interracial marriage or whatever the case may be. There are a, a variety of things you can look to historically that clearly stand as examples of anti-libertarian institutions that had people under the state's thumb. We need to acknowledge that, and we need to have an answer to that. And in our advocacy for what the culture should look like going forward and what public policy should look like going forward, instead of pointing to the past and saying we want to go back there, we need to present an idea for the future wherein things look different than they ever have before. I'm talking right now about real progressivism. Just flush everything that comes into your mind when you hear the word progressive down the toilet because it's all garbage. Like what the left has done to the word progress, what the left has done to the term progressivism is, like I said, rhetorically criminal. They have perverted, they have inverted the meaning of words when it comes to progress and regress and forward thinking and retrograde you know, reaction. The truth of the matter is that real progress, real forward thinking, a truly futuristic vision for a, a brighter tomorrow can only be found in a culture of consent and a politics of libertarianism. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. It's often been said that the Democratic Party, as it stands today, never would nominate for president the likes of John F. Kennedy. That John F. Kennedy is not the type of man, the type of candidate who could make it in today's Democratic Party. And I think that's true. I think he's he's nowhere near woke enough for modern liberals, modern Democrats. But I wonder after reading what I'm about to share with you today, whether or not the the speed of cultural change, this culture of conquest that I've been talking about this hour, whether the speed of cultural change, particularly within the political left and within the Democratic Party, is moving so fast that even former President Barack Obama, out of office only two years, I wonder if even he would be able to get nominated by today's Democratic Party. And the reason why I say that is because he said something today, or yesterday actually it was, that I find myself in complete agreement with and that runs counter 
to virtually everything that's going on within the left today. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us from Reason. In a speech commemorating Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday, former President Obama condemned strongman politics and the rising tides of nationalism. Coming just a day after President Trump's humiliating presser with Vladimir Putin, in which Trump appeared to have gullibly swallowed Putin's obvious lies about Russia's interference in the 2016 election, many will see Obama's remarks as a thinly veiled criticism of his, his successor. But Obama also made remarks that can only be seen as a condemnation of intolerant leftists who shut down speakers on college campuses because they find their views offensive. Here's what the former president had to say. Democracy demands that we're able also to get inside the reality of people who are different than us so we can understand their point of view. Maybe we can change their minds. Maybe they'll change ours. You can't do this if you just out of hand disregard what your opponent has to say from the start. And you can't do it if you insist that those who aren't like you because they are white or they are male, somehow there is no way they can understand what I'm feeling. That somehow they lack standing to speak on certain matters. That was the comment from President Barack Obama. Obviously, again, as noted here at Reason, directed at his own, directed at the modern day left at the resistance. Reason continues, this is a direct rebuke of the notion that only people who are oppressed for some reason because of their race, gender, sexuality, disability, status, size, etc. should be allowed to speak on issues relating to said difficulties. In a related bit of news closer to home from the Star Tribune, using the wrong pronoun could turn into a firing offense at the University of Minnesota. The U is considering a new gender identity policy that would assure transgender men and women, as well as others, the right to use whatever pronoun they wish on campus, whether it's he, she, Z, or something else. Apparently Z is a thing. Uh, Outside of reading it in a news article, you will never hear me use it. And everyone from professors to classmates would be expected to call them by the right words or risk potentially disciplinary or potential disciplinary action up to firing or expulsion. The pronoun rule is just one of the proposed changes in a draft U policy that advocates say would bar harassment and discrimination against transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. It's designated in part to combat an indignity known as misgendering. When someone is called by a name or personal pronoun, they no longer use. Now, is, is this really an indignity? Like, uh, your name was John, and I've known you as John for a period of time, right? It's not like we just met, and I'm maliciously or, you know, with a, with a sense of uh, malice referring to you in a derogatory form as a name you used to have. But I've known you for some time as John, and suddenly you decided you're going to become Jane, and out of habit or instinct, I call you John. Now I'm potentially going to be expelled as a student at the University of Minnesota. I'm potentially going to be fired as a faculty member or staff member at the University of Minnesota because I didn't call you by your preferred name or your preferred pronoun. This is beyond the pale. Well, and what's going to happen now, too, is professors are going to ask students, like, hey, what's your pronoun? But they're only going to end up asking the people that look questionable. 
Right. And then they're going to take it as some sort of microaggression. Like, oh, right. that professor should just know. That's that's exactly right. That This puts the burden. Here's the, here's the deal. There are social conventions, right, in terms of we know when we're being treated respectfully and we know when we're being treated disrespectfully. We know when the intention of somebody who's engaging us is to respect us and when their intention is to be in some way malicious or derogatory. And what this the, what this policy creates is a scenario whereby the intention of the person who's engaging you becomes irrelevant. The only thing that matters is your perception of whether or not you were wronged, right? And that's it. It doesn't matter what they intended. It doesn't matter whether or not their contact was contact was objectively inappropriate. It only matters that you were offended. And and that alone onto itself, just being offended is enough to get them fired or expelled. That is insane. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. University of Minnesota is seriously consider, considering the institution of a new gender identity policy that would punish, literally punish people, classmates, professors, faculty, staff, if they use the wrong pronoun to address a transgendered individual. You could get fired. You could get expelled if you refer to a man who thinks he's a woman as he or use the name that he was given at birth that could be a firing offense or a reason for expelling you from campus under this policy this is actually being considered it's being considered seriously and it's regarded by its proponents as a wonderful step in the direction of moving us all towards some sort of progressive egalitarian utopia closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 11 fm TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Let's hear from Anthony in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks again for taking my call. Yep. Um, so uh, I do have people that um, I'm related to that go to the U of M and they tell me about how crazy all this is. They might just be announcing it now, finally, but this has kind of been an unwritten rule because they're all crazy, baddie lefties over there. So yeah. you, you're going to have to, at what point is it going to end? I mean, if you if you ever take a look at people that crash these, these like, democratic socialist meetings, mm-hmm. you have people there that identify as ornate buildings. You had I saw I saw a thing where Steven Crowder went in there and uh, he had somebody identify as a robot and start going beep beep boop boop and like, you got to be kidding me seriously <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever seen so at what point or, or uh, is this going to stop and if it's yeah. going to stop um, I don't see it going very well for for the future generations I don't either I appreciate your comments as always Anthony and this. The reason why I'm raising this, bringing our attention to this story, aside from just, you know, the provocative shock value of what it is and the fact that it's happening, is that it does mesh into or fit with what we've been talking about tonight on the program, which is this this sort of genetic, generational 
trajectory between the culture and our politics, whereby if you have a culture of conquest, which says, you know, in order to get what I want, I have to club somebody over the head in order to take it, that spawns a politics of authoritarianism. And this is an example of it. The idea that in order for me, that, that I have some right as a, you know, hypothetical transgender woman, right? I have a right to be regarded how I think I ought to be regarded. You know, I'm, I'm going, I'm laying claim. I'm annexing the minds of my fellow men and women and saying, you will call me by the pronoun that I say you should call me by. You will refer to me and think of me on the terms that I insist you think of me on. I mean, this is the, this is like three year old, four year old level social expectation of I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, and you will give it to me. You will acknowledge me. You will affirm me. That's the impulse that's in play here. And it's, it's not just childish. It's dangerous. It's a rejection of reality itself. And you know, this, this notion, and it's also inherently exclusionary. See, this is the problem with the culture of conquest. And the, the way that the left approaches the, the task of righting wrongs in their view, in, in setting straight what they regard to be injustices. In their mind, everything's a zero-sum game, right? Like, there, there's always going to be, from the perspective of the culture of conquest, there's always going to be a winner and a loser. There's always going to be somebody who has the power and somebody who is subject to that power. The concept of being free and engaging in the, in the culture of consent and having free association and treating each other truly as equals is completely outside the bounds of possibility in the mind of the left. And so from that perspective, the only possible solution to their perceived problem is to force other people to do what they want, to force other people to say what they want, and ultimately to think what they want. You know, we, I, was, I was talking about this with Brad during the break. How does this apply to the issue of dating? I mean, think about this. If I have the right as a transgender woman to be called she and to be referred to as Wilma or whatever my transgender female name is, right? If I have the right to be regarded as a woman, then how, how do we deal with, you know, me putting my, my profile out there on a dating app as a woman and being treated differently because I'm transgender? Do I have a right to be thought of as attractive? Do I have a right to be thought of as a woman in sexual terms by men because I've decided that I'm a transgender woman? I mean, look, it seems like an absurd question, but under the premise that's informing this potential University of Minnesota policy, it's a legitimate question. Like, are, are you going to be able to, is a transgender woman going to be able to take a male student before the university authorities and accuse him of a inappropriate, unacceptable policy violating bias because that, that boy said, I don't want to date you or reacted in some way other than you're an attractive woman, right? Like 
Because if you're gonna lay, if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna start laying claim to how people perceive you, there is no limiting principle to how far that goes, right? Or is there? I'm, if you're on the left and you think this is a good idea, by all means, 651-989-5855. You tell me what the limiting principle is. You tell me why it is that I can be expelled or fired for referring to a transgender uh, woman as he, but it's somehow okay for me to not find a transgender woman attractive or to not regard a transgender woman as an actual woman. This is something that I need that you need to explain to me. You need to understand or I need to understand. And this is the problem. You know, this this is a, a manifestation of this this culture of consent or this culture of conquest, rather, that I've been talking about during the first hour, where whereby the the only possible prescribed solution or perceived problem is clubbing somebody else over the head and taking what you want. In this case, literally their thoughts, their regard, their respect, you're going to seize their respect. You're going to seize their regard for you as a human being. Another example of this, of course, are the several policy prescriptions coming out of the campaign for Congress of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, there were a couple of pieces that brought this to light. One comes to us from the Daily Wire. Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said in a recent interview that the now low U.S. unemployment rate is, quote, a part of the problem, unquote, that she is looking to solve, then proceeded to make multiple false claims. Ocasio-Cortez joined Margaret Hoover on PBS's firing line where she attacked Israel, calling them the occupiers of Palestine, before admitting that she had no idea what she was talking about, despite having a degree in economics and international relations. And that is that is not hyperbole. I watched this interview, and that is quite literally what happened. <laughs> she She referred to... Israel as the occupiers of Palestine, and when uh, Margaret Hoover pushed back on her and asked her to expound, she literally said, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about that, (laughs) which is nuts. During the interview, Ocasio-Cortez also made troubling remarks about the U.S. economy after Hoover noted that the economy under the Trump administration is strong with an unemployment rate hovering around 4%. Well, I think the numbers that you just talked about are part of the problem, Ocasio-Cortez replied, because we look at these figures and we say unemployment is low, everything is fine, right? Well, unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. What? Unemployment would still be low if everyone had one job. What? What? She went on to say unemployment is low because people are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and can barely feed their kids. Again, huh? What? 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 Ocasio-Cortez continued by saying, capitalism has not always existed in the world. She's right about that. And will not always exist in the world. That's definitely her goal. Before falsely stating that America was not pro-capitalist at its inception. And, you know, this, this tells, this is indicative of not only the, the direction that Ocasio-Cortez wants to go, but the, the way that the left perceives the world when you have to try to twist good news into bad news when you have to try to look at something positive in the economy and a positive development in people's lives here in the united states of america and try to twist it into somehow being a negative no it's a bad thing that we have low unemployment i mean she might have been she probably meant underemployment and in that sense she would be correct like it 
might be bad that people are working two jobs. Like, you know, I, w- I was there just a couple years ago. Right. But even people in those situations are having a better life because there is such a high labor shortage that people at Target are getting raises. People at the fast food restaurant are getting raises. Their standard of living is growing just by the natural market forces at play. No joke. There are places in this town, within the broadcast area of this station, where you can make more money working at Taco Bell than I was making at my primary job just 10 years ago. That is insane. And it's indicative of the fact, not you know, not just the, the manipulations of the minimum wage, but also actual genuine economic growth and opportunity in this country. That is a good thing. And the, the question, again, this is all about perception, right? You want to talk about underemployment as a concept? The question becomes, why is there underemployment? Why do people have to work 60, 70, 80 hours? Why do people have to have two or three jobs? And the, 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 and what's the solution? How are you going to solve it? How are you going to make things better? Ocasio-Cortez's answer is that through an a outgrowth of the culture of conquest, we are going to implement authoritarianism. We are going to seize that which belongs to others, and we are going to redistribute it in order to somehow magically make people's lives better artificially. Well, the entire concept of economics from a socialist perspective is that a, a capitalist says your value is subjective, your value is what you determine it to be, and you have the right to negotiate that. Right. But a socialist says that you only have a finite number of hours to work in your life, right. so therefore you should be paid the amount that you spend working in your life, which kind of makes sense if you think about it just on its face. It does. Right. But I remember the article we shared about a guy who tried to make his own sandwich from scratch yes. and how it took him how many hours? Like right. 80 hours, 60, 60 hours it was. Right. Yeah. That better have been the best damn sandwich that he ate in his life. How much did it cost? $600? Right. <laughs> well, and what, what that speaks to, I remember that story and talking about it. What that speaks to is the the liberation that takes place under the division of labor. When you are able to engage in trade with others who are able to specialize in what they do best, it literally saves you time. It literally saves you money. It very objectively and meaningfully and tangibly makes your life better. And that is something that, again, only happens. That is a feature, an exclusive feature of Liberty. Authoritarianism cannot, out of its nature, cannot produce that, cannot provide that. You cannot, through an act of Congress, mandate the market magic of the division of labor. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Rotson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So speaking of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, over the weekend, I was milling around the notion of 
trying to bounce off of her prescribed idea, and she's not the one who came up with this idea. This is something that's been floating around out there for a while, of a universal basic income. And I thought to myself, you know, what if as a a way of changing the incentives of the way things work politically and culturally? Because, you know, because I've been thinking about this, this tension between the culture of conquest and the culture of consent and the fact that the trajectory of our culture and our politics is toward authoritarianism. How do we change that? You know, what could we prescribe that could potentially get people to start thinking in terms of the benefits of the market and the value of investment and productivity. And one of the things that occurred to me is what if we took this idea of a universal basic income and we actually tried to implement it in a quasi market fashion. Now, obviously by virtue of the fact that you're talking about a government redistribution program, it's not going to be market based inherently. However, you could, you could do it in such a way that it was tied to market performance. And the general idea that ran through my head was what if we got rid of all entitlements? What if we got rid of all government provisions, you know, public education, right, is a huge one, uh, Medicare, Social Security, all of the guarantees of service and the guarantees of provision that are currently part of our government system. And we replaced all of that with a universal basic income. So you're given a certain amount of money and you could do whatever you want to do with that money. You can buy the education that in your judgment is the best education for your child. You can pursue the healthcare options that in your judgment are the best possible healthcare options. You know, you could, you could spend it how you want. And therefore you have the, the reintroduction of market forces into areas like education and healthcare, which as we know, would result in higher quality of service at a lower cost because that's what the market does everywhere it's tried every time you allow freedom to work that's the result so you know i i kicked this around and my thought process was one way you could implement it that might actually give people that might actually change the culture is if you tied the amount of money that people were given for their universal basic income to the performance of the market. And so the first thing that popped in my head was, what if we had a flat tax on capital gains? And, you know, right now, the average effective tax rate on capital gains is about 15%. So what if we had this flat tax on capital gains and we just, whatever that number is, the total amount collected, we just split it evenly amongst everybody living in the United States of America. 380 million people as of 2014 what would that look like you know would that be, and, and if people got that amount of money and they knew they started to catch on to the fact that the better the economy does because that's where this money's coming from it's from coming from capital gains right the better the economy does the more money they're going to get that they would actually start to support policies which facilitate a stronger economy so they would they would be in the green movement would deteriorate under this paradigm was one of my thoughts because who's going to argue against mining who's going to argue against industry when they're getting a check every month that's tied to the performance of the economy so this is the direction that my mind started to go and i had a moment which 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and other folks of socialist ilk have never had. They've never had this moment. And that moment occurred when I actually tried to test the veracity of my burgeoning idea with a calculator. (laughs) And the logic very, very quickly fell apart. Here's what I found. And this was like on a the proverbial kitchen napkin earlier today. If you go and you look at historic capital gains in 2014, the total realized capital gains in the United States were, let me see if I can get this right, $716,162,000,000, right? So, you know, like $0.7 trillion. 15% of that, which again, 15% is the effective, current effective tax rate, average tax rate on capital gains. 15% of that would amount to $107,424,300,000. Now, if you were to split that equally amongst every man, woman, and child living in the United States in 2014, the year that it was collected, the individual share, and this is annually, the individual check that you would receive for the year of just redistributing a flat redistribution of that capital gains tax would be $337. That's it. That would be your universal basic income under my, my uh, burgeoning concepts. Melvin Carter would put that in a college savings account. <laughs> yeah, right. So obviously that's not going to do much for you, right? Like you you that's not going to have much of an, now, Taking that money from the people who actually earned it through their investment will have a huge impact on the economy. But redistributing it to every man, woman, and child in the United States would have virtually no effect on the economy whatsoever. So pretty bad plan, right? So from there, I thought to myself, well, what if we expounded upon What if we went, you know, we, we took the, the pedal to the metal and we went all the way. And instead of capital gains, we applied our universal basic income tax to the entire GDP, all the production in the United States. And so in 2014, the GDP of the United States of America was $17.39 trillion. Now, if we took our tax rate of 15% and we applied it to that, we would come up with $2,608,500,000,000. And if we divided that equally amongst every man, woman, and child in the United States, you know what they would get for the year? $8,100. Still not a lot of money, right? Like, if you divide that up, it it basically amounts to $730 a month is what you would end up with. And that's taxing all production in the United States at 15% and just redistributing it. And it's not factoring in any sort of bureaucratic or administrative costs that would obviously be incurred through the process of collecting that money and redistributing it. Now, you know, even if you were to up this, right, like instead of 15%, if you were to get more progressive and to say, we're going to tax, we're going to tax 40% of GDP, 40%, you know, four out of every $10 that are made in the United States that are produced through the industry and productivity of people working in this country, we are going to take and we are going to redistribute in the form of a universal basic income. You know what the universal basic income would be for every man, woman, and child if you divided it up evenly? $21,000 for the year. 
Now, that sounds like a decent amount of money, right? $21,000 until you realize that's less. That is less by a significant margin than what you would make under a $15 an hour minimum wage. So under a completely unplausible scenario whereby we went full socialist and we decided that we were going to seize four out of every $10 made in the United States and redistribute it, somehow magically redistribute it without taking a penny for administrative costs to every man, woman, and child in the United States, they would still be making less than they would under minimum wage. But that's what's insidious about it, though, is they want more. Right. Right. Well, and the, So what this reveals, when you actually take the calculator out and you actually put these policy considerations, these, these platform planks of the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to the test, what you quickly realize is that it's, we talk about it being unicorn rainbows and, and uh, you know, unicorn farts and what have you. It truly is absurd. It, this should be laughed off the stage of the public discourse as completely implausible. And yet, a vast segment of the population takes it seriously and thinks that it's somehow actually going to happen. And they are expecting that it will happen and that their lives will be made better for it when that is literally impossible. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, I got to tell you, there's been no better news for Republicans here in the state of Minnesota than Keith Ellison announcing that he's leaving his current position in the congressional district in Minneapolis, the 5th congressional district here, in order to pursue statewide office in order to try to become the attorney general here in Minnesota. That is great news for Republicans because what it does is it ties the entire Democratic ticket, you know, assuming he ends up winning the primary, assuming he ends up on the general ballot, ends up tying the entire Democratic ticket in this state to everything that Keith Ellison has done and said, and boy, the list. I mean, the list. It's nuts. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming on TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Oman takes your calls and produces the show. A couple of recent examples from the Daily Caller. Democratic Minnesota Representative Keith Ellison, the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee, claimed on Wednesday that America's national borders create an injustice by keeping Mexican workers from traveling to the United States to look for higher-paying jobs. Now, if we just paused right there, like if that was the extent of it, if that was the end of what he said, his entire statement, I might find myself in agreement with him, right? Like we've talked about immigration extensively here on the program, and it's one of those areas where I find myself in contrast to many of you who listen to the show where my view is that we we ought we probably ought to aim for the place we probably ought to aim for the condition of liberty a rights respecting government a scenario in which people can pursue and keep their own values in pursuit of their own happiness as they define it 
And if we had that circumstance, a government where there was no welfare state, a government where your individual rights were protected, then immigration, all of the problems that we currently associate with immigration would go away. They would disappear. And so you wouldn't need to invest in keeping people out of the country because there would be no negative consequences of them moving here. They would, in the condition of liberty, you have to take care of yourself. There is no other option. There's no, nobody else is going to do it for you, right? So this idea of absorbing the foreigners, that concept would evaporate under the harsh light of liberty. So if that's all that Keith Ellison had said, that there's an injustice keeping Mexican workers who are seeking higher wages out of the country, then you know there's a sense in which I would agree with that. But he continued. Ellison claimed in an interview with the progressive activist Rabbi Michael Lerner that America's prosperity is based on the want that is experienced in other parts of the world. So in other words, the only reason why you have something here in the United States is because there's poor people elsewhere in the world. Now, you got to hand it to Keith Ellison. This is a consistent application of socialist thought. This is a consistent application of the left's worldview. They believe that the only way you can achieve, and again, we're, you know, we talked earlier in the program about this culture of conquest. Here it is. This is what it looks like. The culture of conquest says the only way for you to obtain and keep values is by knocking somebody else over the head and taking what you want. And so under that premise, Keith Ellison points to the prosperity of the United States and says, aha, you've been caught red-handed, you're prosperous, the only way to become prosperous is by taking it from other people, and because there are all these other poor people in the world, obviously you took something from them. That's his argument. Continuing with the Daily Caller, he complained that people, regular people, cannot go back and forth across the border seeking out the highest wages. He expounded, saying, we just have to say that the 12 million undocumented people in the United States are here because somebody wants them to be. But they want them here to do the work, but they don't want them to get any rights. They don't want to pay them fairly. They don't want them to be able to bargain collectively. They don't want them to be able to get occupational safety and standards, and that's what's really going on, Ellison said. So in in this comment that Keith Ellison is making, he's betraying the real motivation of the left in on the issue of immigration. It's not that, you know, he, he couches it in this premise that, you know, there's poor people from Mexico and Central America who want to come here because this is where the work is and this is where the opportunity to make money is. Now, that's true, right? Obviously, that's true. But it's not, he doesn't want them to come here so that they can avail themselves of the fruits of liberty. He wants them to come here so that they can strengthen the political agenda of the left. So that they can become part of unions, so that they can, you know, benefit from minimum wage and other economic interventions, so that they can bolster the bureaucracy and the 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 deep state, so to speak, at the federal level and at every other level of government. That's the interest here. As usual, when it comes to the left, the interest is not in how we actually solve people's problems, but how do we leverage people's problems in order to advance our political and cultural agenda. There's another piece over at the Washington Free Beacon that uh, also points to this same interview that he did with this guy, Michael Lerner, 
Democratic National Committee Deputy Chairman Keith Ellison said he liked the concept of requiring corporations to renew their charters regularly by going through international public representatives. The remarks on corporate oversight from Ellison, who is currently running to be Minnesota's Attorney General, came during an interview with far-left Rabbi Michael Lerner. Lerner asked if the congressman agreed with an idea that corporations making more than $50 million should have to receive a new charter every five years. He said corporations would have to prove a satisfactory history of environmental and social responsibility to a jury of ordinary citizens who get to hear testimony not only from the people where they are located, but anybody all over the world. Any community that has been affected by the operations of that corporation get to testify before this jury, or they can do it on the Internet. And the corporations have to prove to the jury that they are actually are working in an environmentally responsible and socially responsible way, or they face the possibility of losing their corporate charter, Lerner added. That already exists to some extent through antitrust law. Think of what's happening, just happened to Google today. Google just paid $5 billion to the European Union because of some something to do with their app and how you download apps from the Google Play Store. And although this lawsuit was only only took place in the European Union, they're guessing that it's going to affect everyone worldwide because tech companies aren't going to take the time to make a software for every different right. country. Right. The same thing happened when was it it was either Britain or the U- European Union again when was it a month or two ago when you got 50 privacy policy update emails. Yeah. That right. was because of another court case in Europe. Yeah. Every company did it because even if they didn't deal in Europe, because they knew as soon as they touched anything to do with Europe, they would be subject to this rule and they didn't want to get caught up in it. Let's be it's clear. already happening. Let's be clear about what the premise is here that Keith Ellison and Michael Lerner are operating under. The premise that they're proceeding from is that you must obtain permission from the state, from society, from the community. You must obtain permission before you engage in relationship with other people to be productive and engage in trade. That's the premise. That in order to continue an established relationship, because what is a corporation, right? What is a corporate charter? All it is, the only thing it is, is an agreement between two or more people. Going forward, our relationship shall be defined as fill-in-the-blank Inc., right? Or fill-in-the-blank LLC. We are going to act collectively as this entity, which we have privately and consensually agreed, shall be this on these terms and will and will engage in this manner. That's two people interact. That's a relationship. And so what Keith Ellison is saying is that he gets to dictate the terms and even whether or not such a relationship can exist based upon completely arbitrary social justice warrior criteria. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. That's what we've been talking about this evening, the culture of conquest and how it results in a politics of authoritarianism. When you believe that the only way that you can obtain and keep your values is by conquering someone else and taking what they have 
forcing them to act and speak in a manner that you dictate, it's obviously going to result in prescriptions for public policy that violate individual rights. And what we need to replace that with through a metaphorical or literal revolution is a culture of consent, whereby we recognize that really the only possible way for human beings to truly pursue happiness is in the condition of liberty, where you're free to engage in trade and production and to, to be of service to your fellow human beings, ultimately to pursue your own values. It's, it's worked brilliantly wherever it has been tried. And, you know, wherever you see pushback, you know, we just got done talking about uh, Google getting uh, pushback from European governments uh, in, in their trade practices. The only effect of that is keeping us from advances in and productivity and pr services and products that we otherwise would be able to enjoy. We won't be able to now because of the interference of government. That's what government does. And when it, when it acts, when it intervenes in the economy, it destroys value. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. There's a thread that was put up today by Justin Amash, a libertarian congressman who uh, is in the Republican caucus. And his response to the Helsinki summit, I think, is just right on point. I mean, he just threads the needle in terms of saying exactly what needs to be said in a manner that acknowledges what's true, uh, what Donald Trump has done right, and also acknowledges what he has done wrong. This is what he had to say. We say diplomacy and dialogue are good. Few Americans would disagree with that. Peace and prosperity can't be secured without communication and engagement. For my part, I have urged presidents to meet with the leaders of Russia, North Korea, Cuba, and other countries to build better relationships. These interactions make it possible to change behavior to turn foes into friends. I believe that this aspect of libertarianism, the desire to seek friendship and peace wherever possible, is among the most appealing qualities of libertarianism. We must not, however, fall for the logical fallacy that because diplomacy and dialogue are good, the President of the United States' performance at the press conference in Helsinki was good. Yet, that's precisely the false conclusion some are making. I've heard it said that anyone who disapproves of what took place at the press conference is pro-war or anti-Trump. No, some of us are just concerned about the bizarre behavior of our President at a press conference. I suspect that many of the people defending the press conference performance did not watch it in its entirety or at all. If they had, they would know that it didn't achieve the desired effect of bringing America and Russia closer. In fact, it did just the opposite. The impression it left on me, a strong supporter of the meeting, is that something is not right here. The president went out of his way to appear subordinate. He spoke more like the head of a vassal state. Perhaps it was just the president showing insecurity once again over the legitimacy of his election. Perhaps it was a sign of a more troubling entanglement with Putin. Whatever the case, the press conference was counterproductive to the goal of improving relations. Even the president ultimately recognized that the press conference did not go well as he tried to correct his remarks that exonerated Russia. Oddly, it took him more than a day to do so. One wonders why the White House didn't act more quickly if it were simply a misstatement. To suggest that anyone critical of the president's conduct opposes diplomacy is to employ a straw man argument. It's virtue signaling, not libertarianism. 
The virtue signal or the virtue being signaled is opposition to all things neocon. If someone doesn't like how the meeting transpired, it must be because that person is a deep state anti-Trump neocon warmonger, etc. When a libertarian's political prime directive becomes owning the neocons or owning the libs rather than advancing libertarian ideals, then that person undermines libertarianism as a philosophy. And the, the thread continues there on Twitter. You can look it up. Just look for Justin Amash, and uh, it's, it's there for your consideration. And this point where we left off here, where he talks about the prime directive of, in this case, libertarians being owning the neocons or owning the libs in a broader sense when you're talking about the political right, that too is the culture of conquest. And that's what we need to push back against. We cannot adopt the means of the left and think that it's going to take us somewhere other than the ends of the left, which is authoritarianism. We have to provide something different. We have to pursue something different, which means adopting and utilizing and committing ourselves to different means, embracing a culture of consent and advocating for what the market actually provides, which is the 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 truly progressive advancement of products and services and the pursuit of happiness. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.